0: The David Pakman Show at davidpackman.com dot com.
1: So, with just days left in their session before the holiday break that is upcoming, uh, Democrats and Republicans in Congress are reportedly getting closer. To a second coronavirus stimulus package, a relief bill, as they are often called. Finally, at the end of December, they are closer, but nothing is yet guaranteed. And I don't actually know what's worse that it's taken seven months to get close to a second deal or what would actually be in this deal, which we found out about over the last 24 to 48 hours, because this is a deal that will include ungodly amounts of money for many industries. And it might include it might include six hundred dollar direct payments for some Americans. Now, the information is changing regularly one estimate was it might be nine hundred dollars for some Americans. Six hundred is the number that AOC and others are talking about. But the last estimate is it will be a nine hundred billion dollar total package with the possibility of six hundred dollars in direct payments to Americans. And in the meantime, it would include that blanket liability shield for companies against coronavirus related lawsuits. That's something Donald Trump has been talking about after the first stimulus package. When discussion of the second one started, Donald Trump at every opportunity would say, We want the liability shield for companies. And th- th- understand what this is a, li- a coronavirus liability shield for companies means that if there is an employee or a customer, that gets the virus because of how your business handled social distancing and and sanitary guidelines, et cetera, you have blanket protection from being sued for that. And it is essentially just an open door to companies to do whatever you can to increase profitability in the short run with no regard whatsoever to the danger that you may be placing your employees or customers or both in as a result of ignoring guidelines which may make you more profitable. It's that that would be in there. But they're battling for six hundred dollar payments for individuals. Uh, The package, again, as of the latest iteration that we've seen reporting on, it would not include any assistance to state and local governments, which is sort of where you need to start to properly manage the different ways in which this is affecting different municipalities and states. So it's just so pitiful and embarrassing and pathetic. There's really no other way to say it. Six hundred dollars. Some people received twelve hundred back in May, uh, plus those six hundred dollar a week boosts in unemployment for people who were laid off. It's been seven months since that with nothing. Who knows even if this is approved? And that's a question mark how quickly the money would actually be distributed and make it into people's bank accounts. And they're talking about maybe six hundred dollars. Democrats proposed doing another twelve hundred and they've been proposing that since May. That went nowhere. Some of the more progressive Democrats, including <clears throat> friend of the show who we spoke to not that long ago, Congressman Ro Khanna have proposed two thousand dollars, some have proposed two thousand dollars per month. That's all going nowhere very, very quickly. And and the reality is, you know, I, I never want to scoff at anything when we know that half the country can't meet an unexpected four hundred dollar expense. You see the number six hundred and you say, well, we that's we shouldn't scoff at that. O- OK. But the reality is that six hundred dollars, if you're doing fine, doesn't change really anything. And if you're. If you've not been doing fine since May, then what's six hundred dollars going to do materially? I get it. You know, maybe this makes it so you can make half your rent payment next month and that's better than nothing. But it's not about beggars can't be choosers. It's that the argument over whether we give six hundred or nine hundred dollars to people after seven months of nothing, given the economic situation communicates a complete lack of understanding as to what's actually going on in the United States for tens of millions of Americans right now. Even the first stimulus with the twelve hundred dollars, it's fine and it was useful for people. But if you were employed at that time and you were continuing to work to earn a living, uh, the twelve hundred dollars was not likely to affect your viability financially over the course of the entire pandemic. And that's why stopping short with that and then going seven months with nothing is delusional. What really was the lifesaver for a lot of people back in April, May was the enhanced unemployment of an extra six hundred dollars a week, which, by the way, in large cities, particularly if you have even just one child, it's barely enough to get by without working. And in some cities, it's not enough to get by. And uh, look at how many businesses were, were closed at that time. So this is a great example of how being cheap is really expensive. And we've talked before. There's there, there was an interesting article I recommended. It must have been a year ago, maybe 10 months ago, about how being poor is really expensive. And it, it, it the article explained, you know, if you're poor, you're likely going you're more likely to go to the bodega in the on the corner. To get four rolls of toilet paper rather than ordering the 60 rolls from Amazon, which are better quality and cheaper on a per roll basis. Uh, But you've got to lay out some larger amount of money up front. And in that sense, it's much more expensive to be poor because you're often buying items at a higher unit cost, sometimes of lower quality and spending more time acquiring those items because you're making multiple trips instead of you go on Amazon and you get the big box of toilet paper. It's an example. The way it applies here is it actually applies to a lot of consumer products. You buy the really cheap work boots this year and you probably have to buy another pair next year and another pair next year or you get and that gets really expensive in the long run or you buy the really good boots with the lifetime warranty. You do have to spend more now, but your long term cost is lower. The way it applies to stimulus is you do twelve hundred bucks in May. And maybe 600 now. And it sounds like you're saving a lot of money relative to giving people $1,500 a month, $2,000 a month. Sounds like you're saving money. But when you consider that the cash payments are demand side stimulus and they stimulate the economy, plus higher long term payments allow people to stay home and be more responsible, which slows the spread. And we know that every person who ends up in the hospital for Corona with coronavirus places a huge financial cost on the system, you realize The higher outlay is cheaper in the long term by suppressing the spread. And case in point, you look at European countries that are only in their second spike now that entire uh, summer period in the northern hemisphere where they had relatively normal summers economically was much better than what we've had here, where we are now on our third peak. We had peak number two during the summer and it was disastrous for business and the economy as, as we continued to hemorrhage jobs. So that's a long way of saying. One of the richest countries in the world, which some love to say is the greatest country in the world, whatever that means, finds billions for corporations in certain industries. And we're arguing about six hundred dollars for people. It's pathetic. Canada did two grand a month for seven months. If you were working but didn't earn very much, you qualified at least for part of that. Some provinces even did additional payments. So what Congresswoman AOC and some others are saying is, if you don't find the six hundred dollars appropriate, Get in touch now with your elected officials and tell them that. But really, uh, more is needed. I mean, you know, if this doesn't justify mass rallies at urban centers, I really don't know what does. Don't these members of Congress and senators work for us? And of course, that's true in theory. It's true on paper. In reality, they're mostly serving the interests of big corporations. How disconnected from reality do you have to be to think that six hundred dollars after seven months of nothing? is going to solve a problem and stimulate the economy. It's completely it's magical, delusional thinking. One of the things we wonder about is does Donald Trump know he lost and he's pretending to have won for optics or to keep raising money from his followers? Or does he actually think he is the rightful winner of the 2020 presidential election? I actually believe that may be the wrong question. People like Donald Trump, narcissists with delusions of grandeur and a complete inability to self reflect, they hold contradictory beliefs at the same time, or sometimes they switch erratically every 30 seconds between one belief and its opposite. CNN is now reporting that Donald Trump has told some advisers that he is simply going to refuse to physically leave the White House on Joe Biden's inauguration day, January 20th. Aides report being alarmed by Donald Trump saying I'm just not leaving because, as you can imagine, Secret Service escorting a president out of the White House would be fascinating, but it would not exactly do wonders for Donald Trump's legacy. But then after saying I'm not leaving, Trump reportedly kind of walks it back and starts talking about who he wants to pardon on the way out and looking forward to just heading down to Florida, seemingly recognizing that he did lose and he will leave now. I'm not surprised by this. The discussion about does Trump know he lost or not? This is exactly the type of thing I would expect, where one second he's insisting I'm not going to leave because I won. And the next second he's talking about screw this. I'm out of here. I'll go play golf. Give me a list of pardons to sign off on. There's nothing at all shocking or unusual about that for someone of Trump's personality and disposition. The other funny thing is that at this point, I believe that most of the people convinced that Trump did actually win and Joe Biden stole it, recognize that unless you get some legal determination to overturn the election, Trump can't just sort of stay at the White House like a squatter, that that's not going to be the way it works. I think even the people convinced Trump did win know that unless you get some uh, a court or, or, or a state to overturn a result. You can't just sit at the White House. Uh, They they know even that's not going to work. And in all seriousness, I would be willing to pay money to see Donald Trump dragged out by Secret Service. But ultimately, it's not going to happen. And Trump may even end up vacating the White House this month. There are rumors, speculation that he'll head to Florida uh, around Christmas or after, even though we go back and forth, though, Trump's going to do Christmas at the White House or maybe not. We don't know. Trump may leave the White House later this month and not even come back. Or maybe he will and he'll be convinced by someone around him, you know, you should really be there on January 20th. I don't know. There would be nothing better for ratings. There would be nothing better for shock value. There would be nothing better for comedy than Trump being physically removed from the White House. But it would be a disaster for the country. And I don't think it's actually going to come to that. Now, in the meantime, prepare yourselves for a flurry of pardons. Donald Trump is getting endless requests. He's regularly asking people around him, should I pardon this person? Should I pardon that person? What about this one? People are skipping the normal process normally to ask for a pardon. You go through the Justice Department's pardon attorney with Trump. Everything is insane. Everything is childish. Everything is 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 unorganized. And so people are calling Jared Kushner. They're emailing Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. If they have a direct line to Trump, they're just asking Trump. It's like a feeding frenzy of people asking for pardons. And what's interesting about that is even though there is a formal process for asking for a pardon, in theory, anyone who knows this administration knows that with Trump, it's who can get in front of Trump when he's paying attention for 30 seconds and maybe get him to sign off. That's the way it works. And they're completely right. Their instinct is exactly right. So we'll see how the pardons go. But Donald Trump will leave. And in preparation for Trump leaving and Joe Biden coming in, uh, on January 1st, we are doing a one day huge membership special. If you've been thinking about signing up, if you are sort of ready to make the commitment uh, to being a, a member, get on our mailing list at davidpackman.com. And then on January 1st, an email will go out, which will tell you here is how to take advantage of this borderline illegal. And certainly immoral membership special that will be themed based on the date. It will be 121, and the membership special will be themed on that basis. okay? Uh, sign up for the newsletter, Davidpackman.com. On New Year's Day, we will let you know how to avail yourself of that special. And of course, let me know what you expect between now and January 20th from Donald Trump. I'm on Twitter at
0: dpackman the David Pakman show at davidpackman.com
1: I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors SH masks SNH masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for COVID-19 and they're giving my audience 20% off SNH masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell, and that's actually why I reached out to them about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year, like many of you, and I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky, lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient, adjustable strap. And it features a disposable five layer particle filter made of activated carbon. They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH Masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackman.com slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. This episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. One of the things I make a priority on the show is not to perpetuate stigma for things that don't deserve it. We've talked about mental health. We've talked about many things where we should all just be respectful adults period and we would be better off and blue chew can increase performance and give you that extra confidence you may be looking for. Blue blue like the color blue is the first chewable with the same FDA approved ingredient as in Viagra and Cialis. It can be taken day or night, even on a full stomach since it's chewable. Blue chew is prescribed online. By licensed doctors. You don't have to go to a doctor's office. You don't have to wait in line at a pharmacy. It ships right to your door in a discreet package. They're made in the USA. And since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, it's cheaper than a pharmacy. And best of all, no more awkwardness. We've got a special deal for our viewers and listeners. Go to bluechew.com. Get your first shipment free when you use our promo code PACMAN. That's P A K M A N. Pay just $5 shipping. That's B L U E chew.com promo code PACMAN to try it totally free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice. And we thank them for sponsoring The David PACMAN Show.
0: The David PACMAN Show at DavidPACMAN.com.
1: Remember that the number one way to support this program is to grab a membership at joinpacman.com. You will get instant access. I do mean instant, at the speed of light. Uh, let's put it that way uh, access to the bonus show and also access to commercial free audio and video streams of the show. Grab a membership at joinpacman.com. Also, please follow the discussions taking place respectfully. On the David Pakman Show subreddit at davidpakman dot com slash reddit. That's R E D D I T. More than uh, more than twenty six thousand. Can you imagine? More than twenty. These are numbers no one's ever seen before. More than twenty six thousand of our viewers and listeners. Uh, participating in the discussion uh, one user suggests I was checking out some of the discussions this morning. One of our viewers says, I think there's a 95 percent a chance Republicans will try to impeach Biden on day one. Going on to say, honestly, I'm not even being facetious. I think they'll start bringing forward articles of impeachment the minute Biden is sworn in. We all know what's the first thing they're going to try to impeach him for. They will argue Biden is an illegitimate president due to mass voter fraud and election rigging in the 2020 presidential election, they might also cite Ukraine scandals being unfit for office or cognitive impairment or make up a corruption story. Um, I, I don't expect uh, impeachment um, uh, articles to be filed against Biden uh, right away. But uh, I would certainly I mean, listen, this is one of the most weaponized Republican parties we've we've seen as long as I've been following politics closely, which I would say at this point is about, you know, 20 years. um, This is one of the most weaponized Republican parties. So I wouldn't be surprised at some point to see an attempt at impeaching Joe Biden. And and again, this is why uh, Democrats have control of the House and control of the Senate is in question based on the January 5th um, Senate runoffs in Georgia. If Democrats control the House and the Senate, it puts these fears uh, essentially to bed. Uh, Another post from The David Pakman Show subreddit, which is not as convinced that the December 14th elector uh, vote is the end, saying it should be over with the electors having voted. But Trump supporters, among them elected officials, are holding their delusions close and vowing to disrupt the certification of ballots on January 6th. Even after that, the inauguration could be targeted. I keep wanting to celebrate and see us moving on. But unlike the Trumpists, I see the clear reality that we are not out of the woods and more insane. Even violent actions are still a possibility. Sorry to say I actually am. I'm less worried about a disruption on January 6th. I assume that some Republican members of the House will stand and object when certain state elector votes, uh, electoral votes are being counted. Maybe even some members of the Senate will stand and say, uh, Mr. Speaker or whoever, you know, Mr. Senate president, which is going to be Mike Pence at the time, I object. But I don't think that's going to go anywhere. The violence does concern me more because at at any point there is a tinderbox situation here. If Trump says the wrong thing or the right thing, depending on your perspective, I think the, the sycophants. Are ready to go absolutely crazy, claiming they are defending who the person they believe to be that they see as the rightful winner of the 2020 election. So that worries me more than any serious disruption to the process on January 6th. Let me know if you disagree and uh, join the discussion at davidpackman.com/slash Reddit. So, uh, listen, there are people who would feel a sense of satisfaction from what I'm about to play for you, I feel no satisfaction whatsoever. I I actually feel despair when I see the video I'm about to play for you because it's emblematic of so much of what's wrong with our country. This is an example of yet again another Republican who was very laissez faire about covid and stood behind Trump literally and figuratively with no mask defending everything Trump was doing, praising Trump until he got coronavirus himself. And I'm talking about former New Jersey Republican Governor Chris Christie, who ended up after not wearing a mask at the White House at a super spreader event. Chris Christie ended up in a hospital ICU with covid. And now Chris Christie is in a national ad defiantly and powerfully advocating for mask wearing. So take a look at the ad. Here is Chris Christie specifically with a message to those refusing to wear a mask. This message isn't for everyone. It's for
2: all those people who refuse to wear a mask. You know, lying in isolation in ICU for seven days, I thought about how wrong I was to remove my mask at the White House. Today, I think about how wrong it is to let mask wearing divide us, especially as we now know. You're twice as likely to get COVID-19 if you don't wear a mask, because if you don't do the right thing, we could all end up on the wrong side of history.
1: Please wear a mask. So Chris Christie says, as we now know, but we've known this for months. So, okay, it's true. We maybe didn't know in February and March about masks. But Chris Christie got COVID a couple months ago. We knew for six months at that point about the importance of wearing masks and not doing indoor events. Everything that Chris Christie participated in, which likely got him the virus. So I get it. On the one hand, good for Chris Christie. And I see lots of leftists retweeting this ad on Twitter. Okay, but this goes back to one of the real tragedies of the Republican Party and reactionary right wing thinking in the United States. This is not new. If you've been watching this show, listening for a while, you've heard me say this before. His view changed only because he got the virus and he may only be willing to do this ad because ultimately Donald Trump already lost and he knows that there's less of a political risk to doing it. This is just like the homophobic Republican who spends 20 years fighting against gay rights and then finds out their kid is gay and has an awakening. Okay. It's great when someone comes around to the correct position. There is no doubt about it. But why does it have to happen only when you uh, 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 recognize that it affects you personally? It only happens when you have a kid or or what you, Right? We've talked about the homophobic example. Can't you simply empathize with the parent of the gay kid who sees you fighting against gay rights and, and have that same awakening? Couldn't Chris Christie Have understood the importance of masks without ending up in the ICU personally after taking his mask off at the White House. Why does it take being in an ICU with coronavirus to understand what we should be doing? Do you think that there's something um, physiological going on where some of us are able to say, hey, you know what? I didn't have covid that, that I know of. In fact, maybe I did actually back back in April, but that's a different story. I'm not aware that I, I certainly had it. And if I did, I didn't end up in the, in the ICU. But I still wear a mask and don't do indoor gatherings and so on and so forth, because I understand that even if it didn't happen to me, it's happening to other people. Why is it that the Republicans seem unable to do it? I, I don't know the answer. I'm I'm genuinely asking it. When we see a Republican show a shred of humanity and empathy, it's because they or someone in their family had something happen to them. And until that point, they don't seem to care. Chris Christie's absolutely correct. And if this video that he did, if this ad he did convinces someone to wear a mask who hasn't been all power to Chris Christie, but this is pathetic that this is what it took For him to come to this conclusion if he's pushing deniers to act responsibly. Thank you, Chris. Fantastic. But why did it take until almost a year into the pandemic? If we had had more prominent Republicans saying these things in March instead of 15 cases will soon be zero. It's like a flu. We're handling it perfectly. We would be much better off right now. Uh, I prefer public servants who can see beyond how something affects them personally and understand how things affect other people and society at large. So yeah, I I know that there are leftists who are merely praising Chris Christie, and that's fine and it's fine to amplify the message. But this is a microcosm. This is emblematic of the lack of or inability to experience empathy that seems to be an epidemic in and of itself among the American right. And uh, I, I I, think we can leave it there, uh, but I'm curious to hear from you. We'll, we'll have more on this as well as the Chris Christie clip on The David Pakman Show Instagram, which you can find at David Pacman Show. You can also follow me on Instagram at David.pacman. Uh, I've gotten so it's funny. I will do something so random and hear from 500 people. And I I don't always understand the logic. I posted like a 10 second video on my Instagram, which is David of me out in a rainstorm and my umbrella reversing. And I'm kind of I'm essentially battling the umbrella and trying to get it under control, like a wild stallion that hasn't yet uh, been saddled. And uh, I I must have gotten four or five hundred different messages about this silly little video. So anyway, if you want a break from the tragedy. And just want pure comedy, follow me at david.pacman.
0: We'll take a quick break. I have so much more to talk about today. Glad you're with us. The David Pacman Show at davidpacman.com.
1: If you ever feel like you just don't have enough time to read all the books you want to read, you have to check out one of my favorite apps called Blinkist. Blinkist takes thousands of popular nonfiction books and distills each one down into an ebook or audio book that you can get through in just 15 minutes where you're getting all the key takeaways from the book. Just imagine how you'll be able to expand your horizons and knowledge by being able to soak up all of the important insights from 10 different books in an afternoon. Obviously, it's perfect for exposing yourself to a new book you otherwise wouldn't have time for. Or you can use it to revisit a book you've already read or use it to preview a book before you buy the full version and read it. I recently read A Brief History of Time, of course, by the great Stephen Hawking. This is a book that I have been aware of for so long and other things got in the way. And it was fantastic to check it out on Blinkist. Blinkist has books on politics, philosophy, science. They have twenty-seven different nonfiction categories, and a subscription is only about eight bucks a month, and you get access to the entire library. But you can try it totally free, and get twenty-five percent off a subscription when you go to blinkistcom pacman That's blinkis tcom i s t.com/pacman. One of our sponsors is privacy.com. They're giving you $5 when you sign up for their completely free service at privacy.com slash pacman. I've been using privacy for a little over a year now. You've heard me talk about it before. It's a lifesaver and here's how it works. Takes just a couple of minutes to set up. Anytime you buy something online or on the phone, instead of actually using your real credit card number, the privacy app and the browser plugin let you give each company a randomized virtual credit card number that you create out of thin air. It'll even auto fill the card number with one click and the payment is taken out of your checking account without the merchant ever knowing your real information. So this allows you to keep your banking information secure, but also to take control of your finances. You can create up to 12 of these virtual credit cards a month. You can set spending limits. You can freeze them. You can delete them anytime you want. So when you do this, it means you're not going to be charged when you don't want to be because you can destroy the virtual card number right after using it, which for instance, I love using free trials because I know I won't be charged when the trial is over. If I use a virtual credit card number, you're keeping your identity private by not telling companies who you are. You're keeping your bank or credit card info protected against data breaches and identity theft and it's free. There's no catch whatsoever. But if you want privacy also offers a $10 a month plan that gives you 1% cash back and lets you create 36 credit cards a month and a $25 a month plan tailored more for small businesses where you can create 60 card numbers a month and much more. But definitely go ahead and at least get started with the free plan. You'll protect your financial info. Companies can't charge you unexpectedly. And like I said, You'll get five dollars to spend when you sign up at privacy dot com slash Pacman.
0: Welcome back to the David Pakman show
1: today. We welcome to the program Lee Drutman, who's the author of the book Breaking the Two Party Doom Loop, the case for multi party democracy in America. Also, co-host of the podcast Politics in Question and a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America. And by the way, he I was hoping to surprise him with this, but he was told guest number 1000 on The David Pacman Show, unique guest. Now, some guests have appeared many times, but we're saying not interview 1000 Lee, but guest 1000, which I feel like is a more precise metric.
3: Uh, yes. And and it's important to have precision in your metrics <laughs> or, else you, or else you mismeasure and you lead to erroneous conclusions.
1: Right. Um, and and so I guess maybe we'll apply that to, to our first topic, which is um, in assessing the the two party uh, doom loop that we have, as you call it. Do you have a, a, a sense of how to measure whether the Republican and Democratic Party right now on policy? Are closer or further apart than they've been historically?
3: Well, I think they are not super close together. But I, I mean, actually, this is something that scholars of democracy around the world do try to measure. And you know, uh, compared to a lot of other countries, uh, which just have a, a broader spectrum of of parties because they have multiple parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are not super far apart on policy uh, you know it's there's actually probably more in common in a lot of policy areas w- what they are divided on is geography and identity and culture and you know there's a, a real sense that, you know democrats and republicans feel like the other party represents a very different and and each of them extreme version of what america ought to be and the, so the real divide is more about social polarization than i think it is about policy polarization
1: over the last couple of years we've seen on the one hand this idea that trumpism is something different from what the republican party has been for the last decade or 15 years or so, or or maybe in the post Reagan era, we could even say of the last 30 years. And yet at the same time, we have actually seen Republicans, by and large, get behind Donald Trump with rare exceptions. So uh, can what's your sense of whether the Republican Party is fractured at this time?
3: Well, I mean, American parties are always fractured because they are these big tent parties, in a sense, they're trying to represent half of the country. I mean, so, yeah, there, there I think, are, are a few different visions of what the Republican Party ought to be within the Republican Party. And you know, Donald Trump is sort of the vessel for at least two of those visions uh, and organizes the Republican Party. Not around a positive vision of what Republicans ought to stand for, but as a combative force fighting the Democrats, trolling the libs. I mean, that, that's the the uh, motivating force of the Republican Party right now is preventing Democrats from being in power. Uh, it's you know, very much a sense of negative partisanship. And when you ask a lot of Republicans what, what they like about Donald Trump, they like that he's a fighter. Right. I mean, it's not that they like his particular policies. They like that he's fighting for them. Uh, And I think that that is the way that he holds a party together, that I think if they actually had to have a disagreement or had had to have a a debate on policy, you'd actually find much more uh, diversity in the party.
1: It's before we move on to how we might break this two party system that we have. It see it seems to me as someone who's on the left that a fractured Republican Party is is good for the left. And when I look at what's happening in Georgia, if you have some Republicans who are saying we've got to vote and then others who are saying, hey, the whole thing is rigged, maybe just boycott it and stay home. And Trump's going after the the uh, governor and secretary of state of Georgia. That type of chaos seems like it would be good for the left. What's your sense of that?
3: I mean, it's good. I'm not sure if it's good for. I mean, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think one of the challenges uh, is that what you know, unless there's like a real, genuine split in the party, in which you know the the, the party actually breaks apart. You now, a lot of folks are you know going to decide. Well, you know, I don't love. I think I think this has been kind of a a, a through line. Uh, you know, there's a lot of folks on the right who say, well, you know, Trump is kind of. And I don't like his tweeting and maybe he shouldn't have done this, but I can't vote for the Democrats. So I guess I have to vote for the Republicans and, you know, hope that eventually this this dies dies out. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think it, I, mean, I don't think so much as what's, you know, I, I mean, I, I consider myself on the left, um, but I, I think more about what's good for the country and what's good for the continuation of our democracy And, you know, I think having a fractured and chaotic party that can only be unified by an authoritarian, uh, you know, cult of personality cult leader, which I guess is probably the best description of Donald Trump, is very dangerous that you need a center right or a right party that believes in basic idea that you have free and fair elections and those elections are legitimate. And, you know, we, we don't have that. Right now, and that is that is the true danger. So, I mean, maybe there'll be some fracture, and there'll be a, a a a faction of the party that says, "Look, you know, whatever disagreements we have with the left, we agree that we have to have a democracy with free and fair elections, and that is the cornerstone of, of our system." And you know, we can argue about tax policy later, but the first thing we have to agree on is that you know you have elections that are legitimate.
1: So what would have to change for the U.S. to go more in the direction of of having at least one more party that's regularly viable? A few of the things I've talked to my audience about include changing how politics is financed uh, would would probably be near the top of the list, uh, also potentially changing first past the post voting, at least w- within states so that the spoiler effect, which keeps a lot of people uh, from going in the direction of an alternative to Democrats and Republicans, would probably be be near the top of the list. Do you agree with these two items? What other items would would you add?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly support campaign finance reform, but I think the The real reason why we have just two parties is because we have a voting system first past the post, plurality, single winner elections in which votes for third parties, new parties, minor parties are effectively wasted. And so all the all the energy and focus goes into the top two parties. And it's very hard for new parties to emerge. Now, the U.S. is an outlier in this respect. I mean, most of the world's democracies uh, have proportional voting systems that do not punish smaller parties. Uh, most democracies around the world are proportional, multi-party democracies, and there's certainly a range of, uh, of, of rules that you know can structure the party competition. I think a healthy number of parties is probably between four and six. You know, I'm not suggesting that we become Israel and have like, you know, 13 parties. Uh, you know, and israel uses a very extreme form of proportional representation that i that that neither i nor most people who study electoral systems would recommend you know i think the the model here should be something more like ireland which uses multi member uh, districts typically 3 to 5 member districts with um uh, uh, a ranked choice voting. Uh, so they they just call it proportional representation. I think another model, and this might work better for the Senate, although it would require a constitutional amendment, is what New Zealand does, you know, which is they, people elect uh, uh, representatives for, for their legislative district, and then they have a second party list vote in which they vote for a party, and the parties get com- effectively compensatory seats in the legislature based on how well they do on the party list, so that it ensures that if you know 53% of people want democrats democrats have 53% of the seats not just how how democrats and republicans happen to shake out in particular states or districts Uh, How do you build
1: consensus to even change that system? Right. Because, I mean, even the conversation about electoral vote versus popular vote to pick the president, one party has benefited from the fact that we have an electoral college and one party has lost out on on multiple uh, uh, presidents in the White House as a result of that. So there's a large portion of those in power who have no incentive to change that system. How do you how do we get over that hump?
3: Uh, There are some people in power who want to maintain the status quo, but I I would say a few things. Um, One, if you talk to most people in power, uh, elected Democrats, elected Republicans, you know, a, a lot of them feel like things are really broken and they feel stuck in this system and they feel trapped in this system and they, you know, don't actually want you know, in their preferred world, they they wouldn't just be foot soldiers in an endless partisan trench warfare where they keep digging deeper and deeper holes. Now, you know, I, I think within the Democratic Party and within the Republican Party, as we were discussing, you know, there are different factions. There are different groups that feel like they have a vision uh, for how politics ought to be. And that vision is uh, is, is suppressed in this current Binary hyperpartisan system in which nothing actually happens because the parties are, are kind of deadlocked. So, I mean, I think there are enough people in elected office, maybe not the heads of their parties, but who might say, look, this system isn't working for us. And, you know, maybe we can try uh, a, a different system in which maybe we get to play a, a different role, perhaps a, a better role. In actually working out uh, legislative compromise and you know trying to trying to solve problems instead of just fighting each other in endless messaging wars in which all this money is wasted uh, just to to fight to basically the same point that we've always been. I mean, for all the money that has been spent on this election, it's remarkable how little movement there was among voters. I mean, it was you know basically the the same same outcome as as 2016 and the popular vote with Biden winning a little more. And Biden did a little bit better in, in a handful of, of states and that, you know, yes, it the game. is that
1: very, very, very well said. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about the Republican Party. We've talked about a, a party uh, possibilities to talk a little bit as we uh, get down to the end of our time about the Democratic Party. Um, there was a modest amount of sort of never Biden sentiment during the primaries and even shortly after Joe Biden, it became clear Joe Biden would be the Democratic nominee. But in the end, uh, most Democratic voters did vote for Joe Biden, even if they would have preferred someone more progressive. Um, Is the Democratic Party likely or how likely is it to fracture in a in a significant way between the sort of bulk of the party and the progressive wing?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the fights will continue. I mean, uh, I mean, a a fracture would be significant. And I think Democrats unified around Biden because they wanted Trump out of office. Yes. Uh, That it was, you know, I mean, if you looked at polls, it was not a uh, a resounding, you know, vote of of enthusiasm for Joe Biden as much as it was a resounding vote of of get Donald Trump out of office. And, And now, you know. Uh, you know, Who knows? I mean, I think, you know, I think I think the the, the progressive left feels, um, you know, like it, it it doesn't have a lot of room to maneuver, given the narrow majorities that Democrats have in the House. Um, on the other hand, it gives them more leverage. But, you know, the threat of Trump winning in 2024 or somebody Trump like winning in 2024. I mean, this is this is the problem with uh, our. Uh, you know, closely fought binary politics is that everybody is just trying to win the next election. And so there's all this, you know, well, you know, we're not going to discuss ideas. We're not going to have debates about policy. You know, we just have to make the Republicans look bad. We just have to keep them out of office. And then we have the luxury of having an actual discussion over policy because we can't fracture. Uh, And that's just the kind of stasis that politics is it. I mean, in order, I mean, politics has to be dynamic. There have to be fights and there have to be disagreements and there has to be uncertainty and there have to be, uh, you know, opportunities to form new and different coalitions. But we're, we're in this kind of frozen state in which everybody feels like they're losing. Everybody feels like, you know, just one election and the entire uh, character of America will be destroyed. And, Creates this incredible sense of frustration. Meanwhile, there are real problems that we have to deal with. Um, climate, I think, being uh, to me the the most important and existential, uh, you know, that, that we're just ignoring.
1: Yeah, I I am less concerned as you're pointing out the the fact that there would be disagreement within or or between parties, but even within we're kind of talking about here. I'm less concerned by that. And that's less of a sign that 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 of a problem in the Democratic Party. For me, the concern comes if there is a wing that is representing a significant number of Americans that seems to never actually get anything for the those constituents that are that are in line with them. That is more of a concern for me than the fact that there are disagreements or even factions, because that actually seems completely natural, and natural and healthy the way you're pointing out.
3: Yeah, it is natural and healthy. And, you know, if we were in a in a multi party system, you know, there would be a social democratic party Mm -hmm. and there would be a, you know, moderate centrist, you know, center left party. And then those parties could go directly to the voters rather than having to compete in in different primaries. And we we'd know uh, what the popularity of their different programs were. And then those would be bargaining chips as they worked out uh, legislative solutions. Uh, Instead, there's a sense that, you know. Democrats have to hold together. They have to win that majority, which is, means they have to win those, you know, slightly conservative suburban districts. Which means they can't do anything too progressive, uh, and that's just the way the math works.
1: Yeah, no question about it. Uh, we've been speaking with Lee Drutman, who's author of "Breaking the Two Party Doom Loop: The Case for Multi Party Democracy in American in America." He also co-hosts the podcast "Politics in Question" and is a senior fellow in the Political Reform Program at New America. Ali, I really appreciate your time today. Thank
3: you, David. This was a, this was a great conversation, and you know I hope, I hope folks uh, you know think about this as a serious solution to our gridlocked and broken politics. The
0: David Pakman Show at DavidPacman.com.
1: You may not have known this, but when you see me sitting here on the show, I am often wearing shirts by a company called Teddy Stratford. I asked them to be a sponsor because they are by far my favorite shirts that I own with almost all other slim fit button up shirts I've worn. You get this annoying stretched out gap in the chest where the buttons are, which does not look good. But what makes Teddy Stratford shirts unique is this patented zipper that's hidden underneath the buttons, which actually prevents the chest from looking weird and stretched out like that. It looks really good. And just all around, they cut the entire shirt in a specific way that makes your upper body look a lot better. It's just a much nicer and more stylish fit than you get from other shirts and they hand make everything with 100% egyptian cotton and flat felled seams which means it's going to be a lot more durable than other shirts and last a lot longer which i really love go check them out at davidpackman.com/teddy the link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 15% off your first order if you use the coupon code packman at checkout that's p a k m a n
0: The David Pakman Show at DavidPakman.com. All right. This is uh, this is fun and scary at the
1: same time. I love a good conspiracy theory. Many of you know I've been fascinated by scams and conspiracies since I was a kid. And I love seeing how do people get convinced of ju- su- such wacky things that you, none of us should be believing in MLM's and essential oils and all, you know, all these different scam products and all this different stuff. OK, uh, if you want to read a book, by the way, about large scale scams and and uh, cults. Um, And a lot of a lot of scams are also cultish, like with MLM's. That's often the case. Check out the book The Road to Jonestown about Jim Jones and the People's Temple. And this is the origin of of the term to drink the Kool-Aid. It came tragically from uh, from the People's Temple and Jim Jones. Okay, here is a conspiracy that comes to us from Newsmax, which is one of the two networks that Donald Trump has been recommending as a truly right wing alternative to Fox News. Remember, Trump and some of his most ardent suck up followers have been attacking Fox News lately as being liberal now because they acknowledge that Joe Biden won the election. That makes them liberal now. And the theory put forward by Newsmax, and I'm using the word theory in the colloquial sense, not the scientific sense, theory, very loose colloquial usage. We're going to look at some clips in a moment. The theory is as follows. Kamala Harris, senator from California, has not yet resigned her Senate seat, even though Kamala Harris is the vice president elect and will be sworn in on January 20th. She is still a senator. She's not resigned and she can vote in the Senate. And her Senate term actually goes until 2023 if she were not to resign because she's going to be VP at some point between now and January 20th, Kamala Harris will resign and that will clear the seat for California Governor Gavin Newsom to select a replacement. The theory goes on Newsmax that the reason Kamala Harris hasn't resigned is because it's an insurance policy, because deep down Kamala knows she suspects maybe she knows that it's actually not going to be Joe Biden sworn in on January 20th. Deep down, this is me. This is not my view, right? I'm telling you the theory. Deep down, Kamala suspects Trump will be getting a second term, not Biden. So she's staying in the Senate so that when she doesn't become vice president on January 20th, she can stay in the Senate until January of 2023. That's the theory. Let's check out some clips. This first one is a Newsmax host. I don't know if it's pronounced Grant Stinkfield or Stinchfield. These are names we may have to become familiar with as media critics for the next couple of years. Here is Grant Stinkfield explaining what's going on with Kamala.
3: Here's
2: the reason they want Senator Kamala Harris to be promptly inserted as president. And may I remind you, Harris is a woman who has yet to resign from the United States Senate in preparation of becoming the next vice president and ultimately president If the media gets their way, why hasn't she resigned yet? Because maybe like all of us, she still thinks President Trump has a shot at victory. If only all the evidence of fraud can be proven and exposed.
1: So that's the idea. Kamala suspects she may not really end up being the vice president. So she's holding on to that Senate seat. Here's another Newsmax host. This is Greg Kelly who suggested the exact same thing just a few days prior uh, to Grant Stinkfield mentioning it. Take a listen. By the way, I think the Biden people aren't as confident
2: as they are trying to convey. Me, you know, Kamala Harris has not resigned her seat, I'm told, uh, yet in the United States Senate. Barack Obama, when he won back in 2008, he resigned before Thanksgiving. I think they're um, just keeping
1: their options open depending on what happens. So there's the same idea from another Newsmax host, Greg Kelly. Now, this this maybe could actually be instructive. Anytime you're presented with a conspiracy theory, you should know the process to go through to uh, evaluate it. And before you even start evaluating the conclusions of the theory, you have to start with fact checking the premises. The first question would be, Is it true that Kamala Harris has not resigned from the Senate yet? That is true. Okay, that's step one. Number two, is it unusual that she hasn't resigned yet halfway through December before a January swearing in? Well, it is true that Barack Obama did resign his seat in mid November in 2008 when he won the presidential election. That part is true. But what's unusual is how early Barack Obama did it. It's very unusual in, if you just go back to 2008. Then Senator Joe Biden didn't resign from the Senate until five days before he was inaugurated as VP in 2009, uh, George W. Bush didn't resign as Texas governor until late December in the year 2000. Bill Clinton didn't resign as governor of Arkansas in 1992 until very late December. Al Gore didn't resign as senator until January of 1993, even later than Bill Clinton, when Al Gore was set to become the vice president. Uh, George H.W. Bush's vice president, Dan Quayle, didn't resign from the Senate until January of uh, uh, the inauguration. So there is nothing unusual going on here. And that's where the conspiracy theory falls apart. It's predicated on everybody else has resigned so early. No, 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 no. no. The truth is, almost nobody has already resigned in mid-December when they are set to be inaugurated as president or VP in late January of the following year. So the most likely reason why Kamala Harris is not yet resigning is that, number one, typically that's how it works, so she's doing what most other people do, and number two, She wants to be able to vote in the Senate because it's not clear how quickly California Governor Gavin Newsom will be ready to replace her. And you don't want to have an empty seat in the Senate uh, when Democrats want to have as many votes as possible, including possibly on very important things like a second coronavirus stimulus package. So this is another very silly conspiracy theory, and we are likely to hear many more of them on Newsmax and on OAN and I'm sure on Fox News as well uh, over the next two to four years. And in fact, I want to go next to talk about Fox News briefly. So as I've told you before, even when you hear populist rhetoric from the right, it often is followed up by the worst policy ideas or blame games. Sometimes Fox News propagandist Tucker Carlson sounds like a populist, not that different from Bernie Sanders in rhetoric, except in the next breath, Tucker will warn you Black Lives Matter might steal your house. And so you need our version of right wing populism to protect you from that, or it'll be immigrants will steal. He'll sound like Bernie and then say uh, uh, immigrants are making us a dirty, poor country, which he has said before. And very often, let's be frank, guys, uh, it, it is a, a very spe- it, it is Hanukkah. Very often the tropes go to the Jews. The anti-Semitic tropes will bubble up in the most unexpected or maybe expected places if you know what's going on. And that's where Tucker went with a segment a couple of nights ago. He starts with the perfect lead up to blaming Jews, which is to talk about people conspiring to secretly control you. If I've ever heard a good premise for an anti-Semitic trope, it's that. Take a listen to this.
2: Welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. We paid close attention to a number of big elections recently. But it turns out that many of the most important elections are the ones you hear nothing about. The news media barely covers them. Most voters don't know they're happening. As a result of this, a small group of committed extremists gets to control the outcome of those elections, often with disastrous results. It happens all the time. And who
1: is one of those people secretly conspiring to control you and others? Well, of course, it's old rich Jewish guy, George Soros. This is uh, this is beyond parody now, but that's where Tucker is going with this. Check it out. It's not democracy as we were
2: taught it. Yet increasingly, it's how things work here. George Soros understands that. Soros has an eye for vulnerabilities. He became extraordinarily rich by finding ways to exploit the weaknesses in systems that he did not himself build. In the early 1990s, Soros became a billionaire by shorting the British pound, crushing the Bank of England in the process. He went on to repeat those tactics in other financial crises in countries around the world. And then George Soros turned his attention to the United States, where he decided he would fundamentally
1: change our society. It's actually amazing that for all of the dressed up populist rhetoric and man of the people stuff and smart conservative Tucker Carlson, who doesn't play the games Republicans play, he's back to blaming George Soros for our problems disguised with the same anti-Semitic tropes that we've been seeing for, what, 150, 200 years at this point? And he continues with this. Check it out.
2: If you're wondering why so many people are being robbed, raped, and killed in American cities right now, George Soros is part of the reason for that. Soros has funded the campaigns of left-wing extremists in district attorney races all over the country, in cities like Philadelphia, St. Louis, Chicago, Boston. Traditionally, a prosecutor's job is to enforce the law. But Soros wanted rigid ideologues who would refuse to do that and instead let murderers and rapists go free while allowing our society itself to degrade and collapse.
1: People are being robbed, raped and killed because of George Soros. How did you not know that? Now, you know how I've been saying that in all likelihood, the return of a normal person to the White House in Joe Biden means everybody goes back to the normal playbook. Republicans go back to pretending to care about the deficit and these faux populists on the right go back to blaming the Jews or brown immigrants for everything. It's the same old playbook. This is an anti-Semitic trope that goes back centuries. The rich Jew using subterfuge to control others and manipulate society, almost like a puppet master behind the curtain, controlling the marionettes for personal gain. It's just anti-Semitism, guys. It's, it's well disguised sometimes anti-Semitism, but that's all it is. When the right talks about George Soros, it's code for the Jews. George Soros is just a rich 90 year old who survived the Nazi occupation of Hungary before moving to the United Kingdom after World War II, But he's become code for. He's become emblematic of the Jews and most of them know they can't say the Jews. So they say George Soros, Uh, it's a meme and it's a dog whistle and a very obvious one at that to many of us, but it still gets by a lot of the Fox News audience. Now, I know that some of you will say, David, there is no evidence that Tucker is personally anti-Semitic. If if that's where your head is at this point, then I probably can't rescue you. But as we've seen with Donald Trump as the perfect example, it's less about the personal beliefs about Jewish people or Hispanic people or black people or whoever. Uh, But it's about playing into the tropes and fomenting these ideas repetitively that that's actually what this is about, arguing about what's deep inside Tucker or Trump's minds. Uh, uh, That that's that's significantly less important. But right on cue. Everybody going back to the standard playbook and the roles we would expect them to have during a more normal uh, administration. We have a voicemail number and that number is a two one nine two David P. Now, I am I'm glad to be corrected on this program. I love it. Um, On the bonus show the other day, Pat and I discussed the idea of vaccination stickers, a sticker that says you've been vaccinated. And we talked about the possible positive impact of that, including that it would create sort of like a public movement to encourage others to be vaccinated. But I heard from a bunch of people with a very different view. And clearly, this is the privilege I have of living in a in a blue area. Folks who live in red areas have written in saying those stickers could get you attacked and the Eggman who lives in a rural red upstate New York wrote in a uh, 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 rather called in and said exactly that. Take a listen to what he had to say.
3: Hi, Dave and Pat. I'd like to respectfully disagree with your opinion on wearing the I got vaccinated stickers. Yeah, I live in an area that is so red that if I went around with an I got vaccinated. Sticker, right. I might get assaulted. I'm not even kidding with you. I actually gave blood this morning and the nurse who took my blood told me I would never get that vaccine, it's horrible, it's not tested. She, she literally mentioned right-wing talking points that I hear Trump say all the time, conspiracy stuff. I'd be afraid to wear I-got-vaccinated sticker the same way as I'm afraid to put I-voted-for-Joe-Biden sticker on my car in the area that I live. Thank
0: you, Shalom.
1: Yes. All right. Shalom as well to to Eggman. Uh, peace and love. He he's right. And uh, I I I think maybe Pat and I were a little bit um, uh, anxious on the trigger of saying this would be a great idea because there are people in in many parts of the country who uh, may not so easily be able to just walk around with their I'm vaccinated sticker. It, it could actually cause them problems. So let's continue to think about it and think about the right way to sort of publicly encourage folks to get vaccinated. But I I think the Eggman brings up a a very good point. We've got a great bonus show for you today. The Swedish king, Carl, the 16th Gustaf, says that uh, the coronavirus approach in in Sweden has not gone so well. We will talk about the possible return of the Iran nuclear deal. We will talk about an important Supreme Court decision that may be coming soon. Get instant access to the bonus show by becoming a member at joinpacman.com.